0: Psalm 118 begins with the words, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. So let that word of praise be on our lips today as we worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray with me, will you? Lord, we often get busy with the world around us and we take our focus away from you. We get so caught up in the pressures of life that we turn away from the cross and from eternity. Forgive us and help us to keep our hearts and our minds on you. Teach us to be obedient as we lift our voices now in praise for the love that we have found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. On Palm Sunday, Christians from all over the world uh, remember the story of Jesus riding a donkey into the city of Jerusalem to the cheers of people who were gathered along the road leading into the city, and he was acclaimed as a king a hero, the person who would come to uh, save his people. And along the road to Jerusalem that day there were some devoted followers who welcomed him as he rode on this young donkey, which was a fulfillment of prophecy, uh, that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. But the people, and the people were shouting, you know, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Um, But just a few days later, their joy turned to disappointment and the mobs began to shout, crucify him. So today we are continuing this series of messages we're teaching called Paradise Lost, Paradise Restored. And how this day, Palm Sunday, is not just a prelude to Easter. It's not just the warm-up act for something greater. This day is the beginning of a week that was a turning point in human history. And if we believe that, I hope you'll be reaching out this coming week and inviting someone to come with you uh, next weekend on Easter Sunday. Uh, To help you with that, we have a short video we'd like for you to see. Let's watch. On the Christian calendar, today is known as both Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday. This is The day we remember that Jesus entered Jerusalem at the time of the Passover with a crowd of people welcoming him as king. It's also a day in which we anticipate the events of the week to come. Listen to how John describes the triumphal entry in his gospel. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. Now there are two competing images in this story. One is Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem with a crowd cheering him as a king. The people in the crowd were waving palm branches in the air which were symbols of victory. The other image is Jesus riding on a donkey which was a fulfillment of prophecy but also a symbol of of humility. So we have victory and humility, strength and power. God's deliverance was coming, but it was going to come through humility and grace and mercy. This entrance tells us that something very unique is about to happen. God was going to save his people, which is what Hosanna, or praise God, means. But God's salvation was not going to come through earthly power. It wasn't going to come through brute force, but rather through God's grace and love. This was very different than people expected. Five days later, that salvation came. Jesus was proclaimed a king, and God proclaimed victory over sin. But that salvation and victory didn't come by a ruler forcing his way upon others, but by a Messiah, the Son of God laying down his life on a cross. The cross is a symbol a symbol of God's strength and power overcoming sin. And redemption would come through an act of sacrificial love and mercy. Now, for us to understand the work of salvation in the cross, we need to understand the backstory, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In this series, we are looking at the important role that gardens play in the Bible. We want to see what these garden stories have to teach us about God, about our own lives and how to relive in relationship with God. The Bible begins and ends in a garden. There is the Garden of Eden where God created the world and in the last couple of chapters of the book of the uh, Revelation, we see heaven talked about as a garden with a tree of life and crops for all seasons and leaves that bring healing. In the center of the Bible, is the biblical story and we have Jesus suffering and dying and rising again all in the context of gardens. So gardens are important to the Bible and we have a lot to learn from them. Last week we learned that the creation story found in Genesis 1 reads like a litany or a poem where we see the rhythm, the flow of God's work in creating paradise, the king's garden. God speaks and something is created and God looks at it when he's done and he calls it good. The creation story was not written as a science lecture to tell about how the world was created, but rather to teach us something about God and something about ourselves. In Genesis 2, we see that God created us out of the dust of the ground, but we are still special and we are unique in all of creation because because God breathes into us and it's in that breath that gives us life and makes us children of God. As we read on in Genesis, we also see that the story of Adam and Eve in the king's garden teaches us how things got so messed up in this world. Genesis chapter 3 begins like this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, and if you do, you will die. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, what's important to see here is that it's not always the big, overt lies that get us into trouble, but the subtle half truths and the way we tend to embellish the truth. You see, the serpent was crafty by using kind of a half truth when he spoke to the woman. He said, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit of any tree in the garden? And That's kind of a half-truth. God didn't say they couldn't eat from any tree. Serpent knew that. And Eve responds, he said we couldn't eat from one specific tree, so that half-truth begins to muddy the water just a bit. But then notice Eve's response. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it Or even touch it if you do you will die now God never said they couldn't touch the tree so where did that idea come from well it had to come from Adam because he was the only one who heard God give that instruction God told Adam that he could not eat from that tree before Eve was created So it was Adam who told Eve they couldn't eat from the tree, and apparently Adam added that part about touching it as well. Now we don't know why Adam may have added this, but he may have done it because he wanted to have more control, more authority. Maybe he was just embellishing the story to make himself feel stronger and wiser in relationship to Eve. Not that men would ever do that, but I think Adam did that here. Now what this story tells us is that things begin to go bad when we listen to half-truths or embellish God's truth in order to feel superior or feel in control. Eve listens to the serpent and goes to the tree and sees how good the fruit looks, and then she takes the fruit and she eats it, and then she gives some to Adam who also eats it. And this was the sin, the sin of disobedience. They didn't want to be children of God, they wanted to be God. They didn't want to listen to God or walk with God. They wanted to be like God. And so they did the one thing, the only thing that they were told not to do. So what happens when they eat the fruit? They immediately see that they are naked and they feel shame. They hear God walking in the garden and they feel guilt. Instead of working with God and they now want to hide from God, what was beautiful has now been lost. What was innocent and pure and filled with love has been tarnished and stained, and it's filled with guilt and shame and pain. (coughs) Once again, this is not just the story of two people who lived long ago. This is our story. We've We've all had that forbidden fruit that we're tempted to eat. We all hear the voice that tells us that we can be more than we are. We can find more, we can experience more, we can get more in life if we'll just take time to eat, if we'll just do what we think is best. If we'll just spend a little bit more money and get those things that we want, we'll be really happy. If we cut corners on that project or on our taxes and save a little bit of money, we'll get ahead. If we share that juicy story we know makes us look good and put somebody else down, we'll feel better about ourselves. If we cheat on our spouse and go deeper into that exciting relationship, our lives are just going to feel more fulfilled. You see, we're all tempted to take and eat because we hear the voice telling us it's okay. So the story is of the fall about paradise lost. is not just Adam and Eve's story. It's about how it all went wrong in the beginning. This is our story. And every time we give in to the serpent's voice, every time we take and eat the forbidden fruit, something beautiful in us is lost. Our innocence is lost. The beauty of a relationship is lost. Our integrity, our honesty is lost. Our physical and emotional health is lost. The story of paradise lost is not only the story we see in us, but it is the story we see unfolding in our world every day. See, most of the tragic stories we hear about in the news come from people who know the right thing to do but choose not to do it. They listen to and follow the wrong voice, whether it's war or violence that we see in our schools and homes, sexual assault, misconduct, crime, greed, the political divide, the hatred we see on social media, a lot of those things are so often due to people listening to and acting on the wrong voice. And what we need to learn from this story is how to make sure we're listening to the right voice and the voice of God. So God created the world to be a garden where everything fit together in perfect unity and where all life was good, in fact, very good. But Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and follow their own will. They did the one thing that God asked them not to do, and they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And at that moment, paradise, which means the king's garden, was lost. When Adam and Eve missed the mark and turned away from God's will, sin entered the world. But the story of Adam and Eve is our story. We still fall short. We still miss the mark of how God wants us to live. And every time we do this, it is our sin that destroys the beauty of life in God's God's garden. And while we may long to return to that garden and dream of a life in the kingdom of God, we know that on our own, we can't get there. We cannot redeem the world. We cannot restore the garden of God, no matter how hard we try. But what we can't do, Jesus can so in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus made a decision to take on our sin and the sin of the world. Jesus was willing to take on himself all of God's wrath and experience God's judgment regarding sin so that we wouldn't have to. And the sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve was going to be fully paid for on Good Friday by Jesus. The Apostle Paul said it this way in his letter to the Romans. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. See, the sin of Adam led all of us out of the garden, out of paradise, but the faithfulness of Jesus leads us back. What we lost in Adam is being restored in Jesus. And this restoration and redemption took place in a garden. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus chose to follow God's will and take up a cross and pay the price for our sin, but the Gospel of John also tells us that it was in a garden that the work of redemption took place, where Jesus actually paid the price for our sin. In John 19:41, it says the place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. Seems it was important for John that we understand that the work of redemption takes place in or near a garden. We come full circle here, don't we? Adam and Eve made the wrong choice in the Garden of Eden, and life in that garden was lost. But Jesus not only made the right choice, he followed through on that choice in another garden so that the penalty for sin could be paid for and our life be restored. So the crucifixion took place in or near a garden. And this is not how we usually picture this scene in our mind. We often think of Calvary or Golgotha as a desolate hillside, some barren wasteland outside of the city of Jerusalem. But John makes it clear that near where the crucifixion took place, there was a garden. It was evidently close enough that John places both of these events in the garden. In Jerusalem, there are two places where we think the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus may have taken place. The first is in what is known today as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. While today this is inside the city walls, when it was first recognized as a possible place of Calvary, it was outside the city. And when Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, became a Christian, she traveled to the Holy Land and it was around 325 A.D., and she found the place that she believed the crucifixion took place. And to honor a holy place in those days, they would build a church over the spot, and so a church was built. And as they excavated the area to build the church, they found a tomb about 150 feet away, they believed to be the tomb of Jesus. So both of these holy sites became part of this great church. Now, it's hard to see how the cross and the tomb could have been uh, in the same place because of this massive basilica that sits there today, but, um, and today the city of Jerusalem is built up all around it. <clears throat> but what we can't really see here is uh, we can see in the other place that people have speculated to be the site where Jesus' crucifixion and burial may have taken place. In the 19th century, some scholars and archaeologists started to question whether or not you know, this was enclosed in the, in the church of the Holy Sepulchre, or in fact, uh, if that was the actual place, or if there was a different place where Jesus' death and burial occurred. So they began to look at other locations outside the city walls. A cliff nearby that represents a skull, that looks like uh, it could be a skull, was considered a possible site for the crucifixion because Golgotha literally means the place of the skull, and this place looked like that. So Skull Hill is located in what is known as the Garden Tomb area in Jerusalem, and when excavations were done, several tombs were found, tombs on the ground uh, in this area, evidence that the garden dates back to about the first century. Now what makes this location so interesting is that we can see what it would have looked like for Jesus to have been crucified and then buried in a garden within a very small compound. A visitor can see Uh, the site uh, of the garden and the tomb. And maybe that's what John was referring to. Whether either of those locations is the actual place Jesus died and was buried is not nearly as important. Uh, What is important is to understand that the work of Jesus on the cross took place in this garden area. What John wants us to understand is that while Adam and Eve lost uh, what they lost in the Garden of Eden due to sin, Jesus was going to restore in a different garden by his obedience to God. And through the faithfulness of Jesus on the cross, our sin is forgiven, our lives are redeemed, and once again we can walk in the garden of God. The work of redemption is what we call atonement, which literally means at-one-ment. Through the cross we are one with God and restored to a right relationship with God. So later this week, when we focus on the cross on Good Friday and think about what Jesus did to redeem us, there are three important things that I want you to remember. And the first is this. The cross exposes the magnitude of our need. Last week, we talked about the cup that Jesus struggled to accept, and this cup was the anger of God that was intended for us. This doesn't mean that God is angry at us in a personal sense. God's anger does not include any kind of personal animosity, quite the opposite. God loves us. That's the message of scripture. What makes God angry is evil. God's anger is directed at the sin which holds us captive. God knows that on our own, there's no way we can free ourselves from this sin or stand up under the penalty of that sin. And on our own, there's no way we can make our way back to the king's garden or be brought back into a relationship with God. And so what Jesus does on the cross, he does for us because we can't do it for ourselves. The cross shows us just how much we need God to be our redeemer. Secondly, the cross reveals just how much God loves us. Jesus chose to carry a cross. uh, This was God's plan, but it was Jesus' choice. God willingly came to pay the price for our sin. Jesus willingly chose to carry the cross and die for our sin. 1 John 4.10 says, this is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sin. The cross isn't just some tragic accident that happened to Jesus. It was what he chose to have happen. God was willing to give himself for us so that we could be considered righteous in God's eyes. God did this because God loves us and he knew that there was no other way. In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott says, God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. The death of Jesus isn't what opens the door for God's love. The death of Jesus is the outpouring of God's love on us. It was God's love that led Jesus to the cross, so the cross reveals to us how much God loves us. And Then the third thing I want you to remember is that we need to see in the cross is that Jesus died for us. It was the death of Jesus, the, the blood he spilled on the cross, that paid the price for our sin. It was the death of Jesus that redeems us and brings us back into relationship with God. Ephesians 1:7 says, He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his own son and forgave our sins. Sin came to all of us through Adam and Eve, and the consequence of that sin was to be alienated from God. The penalty for all sin was paid for by Jesus on the cross so that we don't have to be alienated and separated anymore. Jesus paid the price and died for our death so that we can be made one with God. And the work of redemption and atonement is what Jesus did on the cross and in a garden so that we could live in the garden of God forever. Through the cross of Jesus, we find victory. Through the humility of Jesus and the love of God, we are saved. Victory comes through humility. It's the message of Jesus on this Palm Sunday. It's the message of God's work on the cross. Victory through humility is also the message of our own faith. We find victory when we're willing to humble ourselves Before God, we find victory when we stop trying to earn our standing before God or stop trying to pay God back and simply just humble ourselves before God and accept his love and his grace. Faith in God simply means humbling ourselves before God's love so that we can experience his life. Victory through humility also needs to be our life of faith. When we offer ourselves in humility to God in the world we find victory when we are willing to humble ourselves and serve god and serve our family and serve the community and serve the world we find victory in life but we also bring that victory of life and victory of god to the world around us and when we humble ourselves and serve others we are helping to bring in the kingdom of god When we humble ourselves and love others, we are helping people to see the power of God's promised land. And we're going to talk about those two concepts, the kingdom of God and the promised land, in a couple of weeks. When we humble ourselves and we serve others, we experience victory, and we experience the power of life lived in the king's garden. Pray with me. God, help us to always follow you for the right reason, because of who you are. You are the anointed one. You are the rightful king over every heart and every life. You died for our sins, and you rose again from the grave, and you promised to come back to this earth in power and glory to rule over all things. So no matter what we are struggling with today, help us to know that we can be an overcomer, if our faith is in you as our Lord and Savior. We love you, and we yield ourselves to you this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.